This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today is University of Chicago Professor Frederick Albritton Johnson and Columbia University History Professor Carl Winterland to discuss their recently published book, Scarcity, A History from the Origins of Capitalism to Climate Change. Professor Johnson and Winterland, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. Very welcome. On background, the author's volume offers interpretations through history of scarcity, a key concept in economic theory in which we believe we live in a world of limited resources and therefore must master or control nature or the natural world to meet desired needs. Think Genesis 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 28, as the listeners probably were, fill the earth and subdue it, etc. The authors argue this view or belief is not inevitable. Nevertheless, having dominated even the age of capitalism, reflects, quote-unquote, the book's summary states, the costly triumph of infinite growth ideologies across centuries of European economic thought at the expense of traditions that sought to live within nature's constraints. The authors state, quote, the book does not offer a critique of the usefulness of the neoclassical concept of scarcity. Instead, the problem we highlight, they note, is that it has been far too successful that is, to further quote, by promoting optimal use of resources and maximum economic growth, it has fostered a world in which the economy and nature are on a collision course. On a personal note, I'll add, because we have successfully ignored anthropogenic warming, moreover, for the past half century, as I've noted for years, the climate crisis has largely become a topic for history professors, and here we are. So with me again to discuss scarcity, a history of the origins of capitalism to the, uh, to the climate crisis are again history professors Janssen and Winterland, Winterland, excuse me. So with that as a background and introduction, um, as advertised, your work provides an historical account, or as you say, a genealogical approach of interpretations of scarcity or the conception of nature as scarce. The book, largely throughout, its many chapters, identifies or explains two interpretations, or you call them umbrella categories. The first is the cornucopian scarcities interpretation, and the other is the finitarian scarcity interpretation. So I'll leave it to um, both of you. Can one of you pick uh, defining one and then possibly the other define the second uh, category? Absolutely. Um, shall I get? Shall I start as well, Carl? Sounds great. Um, hi, everyone. It's it's a great pleasure to be on this podcast. Um, thanks for listening. Um, so my name is Friedrich Albritton Johnson. I'm a historian at the University of Chicago, as um, David noted. Um, and I I work uh, at the nexus of intellectual history and environmental history. I'm particularly interested in how ideas of the economy and how ideas of nature have interacted over the last four or five hundred years. Um, and um, I, I take some credit for uh, coining uh, the word cornucopianism. It's it's long 
been a concern of mine to to find a way to talk about growth ideas uh, that uh, defamiliarizes them. Um, we we live in a world that's completely dominated by the idea of economic growth, of infinite economic growth. Uh, that assumes that everything about nature is uh, fungible, malleable, can be, uh, uh, you know, um, transcended or or transformed in ways that are amenable to human needs. Uh, so the book describes the slow and gradual and then very quick. Uh, this is Hemingway's definition of bankruptcy, right? Uh, the slow and gradual and then very quick domination of cornucopian ideas in the West and then around the world. Um, so we, we take the readers on a 500-year tour of ideas of growth. And one of our basic points is that this, this wasn't always um, a self-evident position to take. In fact, early on in the 17th century, um, it was very much a minority position associated with some rather eccentric people, um, alchemists and projectors. Um, so, Carl, I, I hope uh, I hope that's enough of a definition of cornucopianism. Do you want to say something about finitarianism? Yeah, I mean, the, so as Frederick noted, uh, our society and our culture is completely. Uh, focused and addicted to economic growth. It's absolutely essential to the very genetic framework of, of, of capitalism. But it turns out that economic growth has not been the normal condition for most of the time that Homo sapiens have roamed the earth. In fact, for 99.9993% of the time that Homo sapiens have been in existence, there's been nothing even resembling exponential economic growth. So the normal for humanity is really a situation in which people live in harmony with nature, in which they're not trying to exhaust resources, they're not trying to achieve as much economic expansion and to use resources as optimally as they can. Uh, and uh, the most Dominant uh, thinking on this is what we call Neo-Aristotelian scarcity, an idea that uh, nature is stable, it's static, it's limited. Uh, it is so because of God made it that way. Uh, and in order to live in harmony with that kind of nature, human societies had to be stable and limited and uh, and the desires that people uh, exhibit must also be constrained. So much of Christianity, if you think about the seven deadly sins, it's it's about limiting desire. It's about limiting our want, our uh, our, our want for more and more. And that was a necessity in order to be able to establish a um, harmonious balance between humanity and nature. And what Frederick noted um, is that. In the 16th, 17th century, there, there's a, a new way of thinking about the world, but but the finitarian worldview always come back, and it comes back in different guises. It could be in Malthusian guise or Romanticist guise or a kind of combination of socialist ways of looking at the relationship of uh, of, of uh, nature and economy. Uh, but the key thing that we are trying to to, to get at in this book is that um, the, the current 
obsession with economic growth is very much grounded kind of counterintuitively in the idea that economists think and assume that everything is scarce, that we always want more, and that we always seek to expand resources as much as possible. And the problem, of course, with this is that we've now run into a terrible predicament uh, in which we are using up uh, the uh, resources of, 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 of the world and uh, we are generating all kinds of unintended consequences and climate change is just one of them. Biodiversity loss is, of course, another important one, and we can go down uh, that list. And um, uh, I'll, I'll stop there. And and, and um, uh, yeah, we'll we'll expand more on the next question. All right. So thank you both. That's a good start. I don't think I saw this in the book, but relative to our current overconsumption, the guesstimate is that relative to resources, the planetary resources, that on an annual basis. And of course, resources renew to some extent, but on an annual basis, we consume, our species consumes four times the amount of resources uh, the Earth has to offer in any one year, so, which is to say, uh, we consume, if, if there were other planets like the Earth, we consume four Earths worth of resources. That uh, gives, gives the listeners some idea of how much we overconsume. But then my follow-up question is, and I'm glad you gave that general answer, um, so you identify several, and, and, and you, you noted neo-Aristotelian, uh, there's other, you note utopian, Malthusian, romantic, socialist, planetary, there's others. Um, but regardless, forgetting how you, the, the, the subtopics in these, on the, under these two umbrella categories, what I was really interested in, and I found fascinating, is the list of, of individuals you, you run through and I actually, in alphabetical order, I only, I only noted 26 of them. And in alphabetical order, starting with Hannah Arendt, Aristotle, Bacon, Carson, Charles Darwin, Paul Ehrlich, and the list goes on through uh, Thorstein, <laughs> Jonathan Swift, Thorstein, Velbin. And I note these because I, I'd like to follow up and ask, could you name a few of some of the more dominant uh, individuals in both of these categories and give us an example of how and why they fit into... Uh, either of these categories, meaning what? how did they argue under either of these categories, or what did they argue, rather? Freddie, do you want to start? I'll say later. Uh, sh- sure, sure. Um, I'll, um, um, I'll begin by uh, stressing that I'll, I'll talk about finitarian forms of scarcity. And, and um, again, finitarian and cornucopian are umbrella terms, and underneath those categories we have about half a dozen right. different ideas of scarcity. Um, so so uh, Carl already mentioned neo-Aristotelian, Malthusian, Romantic, Socialist. And uh, one category that didn't come up yet under the Finitarian umbrella is uh, planetary scarcity. Uh, planetary scarcity describes the condition that we are um, increasingly under in the present moment. So all of these are categories of finitarian scarcity that uh, uh, hold that the world is um, the world is in the end limited. Uh, that nature is limited. Nature is finite, and that human desires and and human societies and economies therefore have to 
um, harmonize with this essential finitude. Um, so, so um, uh, some figures uh, in in um, in the book um, that are emblematic of this attitude would include, for example, um, in most recently people like Bill McKibben, uh, the sure. American environmentalist. Right. Um, Pope Francis, um, whose uh, encyclical Laudato Si is, in some ways, you could understand it as a revival of neo-Aristotelian, uh, almost medieval views of, of the earth and humanity. Um, other people who could be categorized as finitarian would include the romantic poet William Wordsworth, uh, and the great classical political economist John Stuart Mill. Mm -hmm. So that gives you a, a, a bit of a range of, of different mm -hmm. viewpoints. They're all quite different, quite distinctive, right? Um, but they could all be sorted under Finitarian. Okay, thank you. So, so let me let me say uh, a, a few things about the the, the founders of neoclassical economics. Uh, and here we we pinpoint Menger, Wal Menger Walraw, and Jevons. And, and they were very much committed to this idea that our desires are insatiable, that uh, resources uh, can be substitu are substitutable, that there's fungibility between all commodities. So they believed that scarcity was an ever-present condition of humanity. But if we move a little bit further um, to the present uh, and we look at Alfred Marshall, for example, he believed that scarcity was a kind of moment in history. Uh, and he believed that humanity could actually circumvent the conditions of scarcity. And the two primary um, vehicles for that, he argued, was education for the masses and economic chivalry for the business classes. So he believed that as people became more educated, more refined, more sophisticated, not only would they become more productive so that they would be able to satisfy their own needs more uh, more thoroughly, uh, but they would also uh, evolve to a level in which they wouldn't be so obsessed with material goods. And on the other hand, with the business chivalry, uh, the chivalry of the, of the businessman, he believed that if you actually change the reward structure and gave business leaders medals or other notes of distinctions, and you, you removed money as the measure of their worth, uh, you could actually get the business elites to be less voracious. Uh, and let me also add uh, one note on John Maynard Keynes, whom uh, most of your, your listeners are familiar with. Uh, he also believed that uh, scarcity was a, a kind of momentary phenomena. And he wrote an essay in the middle of the, the Great Depression in which he looked forward to the economic possibilities of our of his grandchildren, although he himself didn't have any kids, uh, but suggested that by 2030, the economic problem would be resolved. There would be indeed be some people who would continue to have insatiable desires and insatiable demands. But he wrote those off as kind of uh, uh, monstrosities or uh, abnormalities. And he suggested that the absolute demand for uh, consumer goods, that could easily be satisfied by the year 2030. Right. So this idea of, of having, living in a constant vortex or vice uh, of scarcity, that would be 
resolved at some point in history. Right. Thank you. Um, you know, you you make brief mention of this, but I'm, I'm curious. Uh, to in your conclusion, you note well the name two names. The one that I recall is Stephen Coulter. This is the negativity bias. Um, the idea that through uh, uh, science and technology there'll be breakthroughs in various fields and that more resources will become available or let's just say be more efficiently used. So, for example, relative to today, uh, in theory, farming the sun is free, right? Photovoltaics, uh, as an example. Where, where, do, where do you both come out on this? This idea, or to what extent do you think uh, that our concerns may be, uh, I'm hesitant to say overwrought, but that there's some negativity bias. Per your point about scarcity, doesn't have to be permanent. It could just be um, sort of uh, conditioned by time, time and place. Um, Carl, shall I, shall I go first? Sure, sure. Yeah, okay. Um, so... So um, one, one way to think about this problem is to, to contrast neoclassical, the neoclassical idea of scarcity with what we believe comes after it, uh, planetary scarcity. So neoclassical scarcity, as Carl just described, it, is, it may seem like a pretty dismal condition, but it's actually a, a, a comedy of sorts. It's a, it's a condition where we have insatiable desires uh, and we constantly run into limits um, of of the real world of nature. But in each each case, in each crisis, it turns out we can overcome those limits. We can mm-hmm. we can um, uh, thanks to science and technology, we can come uh, come upon technical fixes right. that allow us to continuously expand. Um, and and those may also be in the nature of decoupling fixes that dematerialize our pressure on the Earth system that, uh, so to speak, reduce our ecological footprint. Right. So it's a it's a very optimistic view of technology and mm-hmm. science and the economy. It's, and it's very obviously uh, around the world. It's it's gained a lot of adherence. Um, and like I said, it's almost common sense now. Um, much of it, I think, has to do with the dominant position of the economics profession uh, in the West and also in other places. Um, um, so contrast that with planetary scarcity. Planetary scarcity is the idea. It's not a Malthusian condition. Um, so it's not about overpopulation specifically. It's the idea that a part of the human species is overconsuming resources and producing pollution on such a large scale that the Earth system itself is affected. Um, carbon dioxide is, the, is, is one very easy way to grapple with this. Uh, uh, from the fossil fuel economy, uh, we get carbon emissions that are now saturating the sinks for carbon around the world, mm-hmm. the oceans, the atmosphere, and you know, ecosystems like wetlands. Um, and so planetary scarcity, um, in, in a simple phrase, is uh, the overconsumption of a minority of the population of resources producing uh, planetary effects of a negative character that destabilize 
the climate, and also the biodiversity of the earth. Uh, we, we are very careful to emphasize that we're not just, it's not just climate change itself, but it's also biodiversity loss uh, that form the, the, the main risk of, of planetary scarcity. Uh, so, so again, neoclassical scarcity portrays the condition of humanity as a kind of comedy of endlessly fixing crises of temporary scarcity and, and, and moving forward. Planetary scarcity depicts a condition where basically there is no technical fix mm-hmm. because the Earth system itself has limited capacity to deal with pollution. Yeah, let, let me just add uh, one aspect to that, Frederick, and and something that we we highlight in the in in the book. Um, the, the key here is that the way that economists think about nature is that it's always outside of the model, and uh, the, the the what we are suggesting needs to ha- need need to happen is that there needs to be a recognition of the economy's embeddedness in nature and that everything that is produced, everything that's manufactured is generating an effect on the, uh, on nature and on, uh, on, on earth systems. Uh, and, um, uh, we are hoping that our book can get young social scientists and young college students and young public policymakers to um, dare to think outside this really regimented neoclassical framework. Uh, Because if you are making the assumption, if you start from the assumption of neoclassical scarcity, you're really stuck in a particular approach to the world and one that cannot actually incorporate nature and climate and uh, and earth systems uh, into the the approach. So what we're uh, suggesting is not that we need a world revolution necessarily, but we really do need a new way of approaching the relationship between economy and nature. And I, great, I, I really appreciate that. And in fact, I actually had a piece published yesterday uh, in The Hill and the last sentence, this was my criticism of certain work by the Congressional Budget Office, I concluded by saying it would be wise for the CBO to recognize our economy is entirely a subsidiary of nature, not the other way around. Uh, so per your point, you uh, you did mention, I was going to know Bill McKibben earlier. Uh, his book, of course, was titled The End of Nature. I believe it was first published in 1989. I do appreciate genuinely the point on biodiversity loss. You're probably well aware we're the only country in the world that in 1992, along with the UN, we did sign on to the UNFCCC, but we did not sign on the con- to, on the UN Convention on Biodiversity. And again, we're the only country that hasn't done that. So a point well taken about the U.S. particularly does a poor job of recognizing the importance biodiversity loss. Plus, as I say, extinction's extinction. There's no there's no technical fix uh, there. Um, I, I do want to ask, and, I'm, and you set me up for this, so you, you said uh, stuck in, a, in an application uh, or an approach, rather, stuck in, 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 a, in a certain approach to the world. Um, so for me, and I was waiting for this, um, so my question is, you mentioned, of course, Rachel Carson, uh, her book uh, published in 1982, Silent Spring. 
I'm sure you know the other great book published in 1962 was Thomas Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. You didn't get into framing your argument uh, relative to stuck in an approach as we're in this paradigm per your just a noted point where, you know, n- nature is free. It's we can exploit it endlessly without consequence. And that's that's becoming ever increasingly a problem. Uh, would you find or think that Kuhn's argument here is applicable or might be helpful? That's a that's a great question uh, and a very nice way of framing it. Um, uh, 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 because we're historians and not policy specialists, uh, we take a pretty long view of of these changes. Uh, as I've mentioned, a five hundred year tour right, right. of ideas of scarcity, and the reason we do that, I mean, ob- obviously we have a professional stake in thinking long, but. The reason why is that we're convinced that um, uh, societies and cultures, uh, even when they're dominated by a major idea like that of neoclassical scarcity, they always have the the capacity and potential to imagine other worldviews. Um, We can we can turn to the past to see this very clearly, how even in uh, a heavily Catholic medieval Europe, uh, you know, you get, you get emerging new ideologies that challenge the orthodoxy. And, and throughout the last 500 years, we've had a kind of dance of finitarian and cornucopian worldviews vying for dominance. Um, so by by turning back to history um, and, and sort of opening up the storehouse of the past, we can see alternative ways of being in the world. We can explore alternative ways of thinking about desire and nature. Uh, and we don't suggest that we we must return. We're not Luddites. Um, mm-hmm. We were both reasonably optimistic about what technology can do within limits. Um, uh, but we also think we have to rethink we have to rethink our our attitude to nature and our own desires in order to get out of this horrific emergency we're in. Um, and so Bill McKibben, uh, the the Marxists uh, who are uh, increasingly worried about climate change, and um, uh, progressive minded Catholics like the like Pope Francis. They are all, in some ways, reviving uh, ideologies of the past, worldviews of the past, in order to rethink the future. So you could you could categorize Bill McKibben as, in some ways, a romantic environmentalist, someone who wants uh, to slow down the acceleration of growth, who wants to to revive local communities. Um, mm-hmm. And mar- the, obviously, the Marxists are reviving a revolutionary socialist tradition, and of course, the, as I said earlier, the Pope is in some ways reviving a medieval neo-Aristotelian conception of scarcity. Now, we don't believe that any of these worldviews is likely to prevail in in um, in the next few generations. I we think that uh, most likely we we will have to deal with a world that is divided by religion, by cultures, by ideologies. 
Um, but we're optimistic that we might, even in this divided state, we might arrive at a kind of consensus under the finitarian umbrella. So that's the point of having these umbrella categories. They allow for a certain convergence of perspectives, uh, but also a plurality of ideas and ideologies. And and just to add very briefly to that, I mean, there's also ideas, uh, I mean, different notions of expansion, even growth, or we can speak in terms of improvement that might be possible even in the future. We can think of, of a knowledge economy growth, informational technology growth, digital economy growth, uh, sharing economy growth, service economy growth. Uh, so we're not suggesting that that we necessarily need to move into degrowth mindset. Um, but we do need to recognize neoclassical economics and its notion of scarcity as an ideology, as a particular way of understanding the world. And this particular way of understanding the world was extremely successful during the 20th century to generate the conditions that people coveted, i.e., economic growth. And this economic growth has really enabled particular political and economical, economic and social formations that many people around the globe have benefited from in the 20th century and 21st century. Uh, it would have been much easier had we been able to just continue to grow because we're very good at that. Uh, the problem is, of course, that we're now facing these uh, these these um, um, tipping points and economic growth of the kind that we talked about before is no longer a possibility. So we need to recognize that neoclassical scarcity is an ideology that's been naturalized, but we, by historicizing that notion, hope to sort of empower young thinkers to go beyond and transcend this received knowledge. It, it's it's had its moment, it's now passed, and we need to move on to a different conceptualization. Right. Thank you. As, since I brought up Q and I'd say we need a new paradigm. Um, I, I was going to ask a question about Gaia. You didn't get into that in the book, James Lovelock, so we'll just park that. Um, mm -hmm. I, I, I do, uh, so I'm going to get to a question about, let's just talk, let's just focus on the U.S., but before I get there, you, you did say we were, you know, through most of the 20th century, we were extremely successful. I that's that's inarguable. I think you're right, but I will say it was a two-edged sword. I mean, uh, the greenhouse, the physics of the greenhouse gas effect were identified in the 1850s. So while we were extremely successful, we knew all along that these gases were accumulating in the atmosphere. Uh, there was a, an increasing energy imbalance, um, uh, and we are, you know, where we are, where we are, and and we knew, and you know, sooner or later we were going to get there. And in fact, you can go back. Uh, you know, Moynihan wrote a, a memo in the '60s. Uh, you know, Gore studied with uh, the Harvard professor who taught in the fifth. I mean, this goes. This argument goes back half a century. But let's just focus on the U.S. You probably know where four percent of the world's population were historically four percent of uh, historical emissions. Um, you talk about um, this generation, these last, these two uh, younger generations. You know they're inheriting this problem. 
you talk and you touch upon and this is where I'm going. Sorry, it takes a lot. You, you touch upon the circular economy as a solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of the generic term. Um, can can you say you say over the next few generations? Can we get there? Because as you know, we're we're per tipping points. We're at four twenty five parts per million CO two. I mean, we're we're in the ninth inning here. Yeah, we we are very very concerned to not leave our readers in despair. Right. Yes. Um, so so uh, although we're not obviously we're historians, we're we're not policy experts, and we're certainly not um, we can't we can't predict uh, what will happen next. But we end the book with uh, this idea of. Uh, a new way of imagining the economy through the concept of repair. Mm-hmm. And this has interesting, uh, I think this has interesting ramifications, by the way, in public health. Um, but basically what, what we suggest is that, as you just said, David, we have been on this runaway train now. Um, environmental historians talk about something, uh, they call it the environment, the uh, great acceleration after mm-hmm. 1950, right. of, of both in terms of economic growth, but also environmental impacts. You're right that the science of greenhouse gases has been here a long time, but it's politically, it's really only in the late 80s mm-hmm. that the American public became aware of climate change, right. anthropogenic climate change as a, as a threat. Right, Hanson, um, right, yes, yeah. Exactly. Um, so it's a relatively recent political challenge. Um, but I think we have yet to snap out of, we call it the Holocene hangover. We, <laughs> we, we still live as if we, we, we inhabited this old world where you right. can just squeeze and exploit nature without any repercussions where, where right. man with a capital M is dominant right. and nature is passive. Um, but so what, what, how can we uh, reorient uh, our worldview? Well, uh, repair is an interesting way of imagining this, um, that we have messed up. We have produced our growth ideology, our growth economy has produced all these unintended consequences that are now, uh, jeopardizing the stability of the earth system. So what would happen if if we imagined nature not as a uh, not as a uh, passive object or a machine that we can dominate but as a partner as a as a living um, as a uh, as a web of life that we have to restore and and revive um, what kind of economic ideals and public health ideals might come out of that? Great point. In fact, there's a physician at U of Washington, Howie Frumpkin, and the title of his book says it all, which is planetary health. There's there's really only one health. Uh, it's planetary health. We can't be healthy with an, with an unhe- on an unhealthy planet. So I uh, appreciate that point. Um, we're at about our time. Um, so let me just uh, ask... Um, for for younger listeners, uh, opportunity for a message to uh, leave them with. Coral, do you want to uh, suggest a few uh, ideas or readings? Um, well, I, so one one uh, book that I uh, just finished that was extraordinarily good uh, in terms of uh, clarifying the challenges that we're facing at the moment and also highlighting the necessity of rethinking our relationship 
to both the economy and nature is by Johan Rockström uh, and Owen Gaffney. Uh, and the title of this book is Breaking Boundaries, the Signs of Our Planet. And I think it works uh, extraordinarily well uh, as a companion book uh, to, to ours. Okay, great. And Thank if you. I, could I add one, one more book to the reading list? Uh, it would be um, uh, Donut Economics by the British economist Karen Rayworth. R-A-W-O-R-T-H. Um, fascinating attempt to rethink economics in the light of the planetary emergency and closely related to the Earth system science perspective of Johan Rockström. So the, the, that, that's a, a pretty good pairing, I would say. Well, great, great. So with that, uh, we're at about our time. Um, uh, uh, Frederick and Carl, I appreciate uh, your time today in discussing this. Um, Great read, uh, well done. I hope I hope I would say it should be required reading. Let's just say in in MPH classes. I I would hope. So with that, I'll say thank you again. Thank you thank so you much so for much having us. Much appreciated. So you have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.